an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you, Pat. I, it's a great pleasure for me to be back here. In that year that I was uh, in Boston, 93-94, I think I more or less finished off the year with a visit here in which I gave the first of the Edith Stein lectures, which is a series, as you all know, that, that continues uh, happily to this day, and I, I'm glad to think, I, I'm not sure how conscious I was of it at the time, uh, that that was the first of, of, first of that series of, of lectures. So I want to reflect tonight with you on some basic issues clustering around the idea of human equality. To what extent is it a reality? In what sense is equality of treatment, of, you might say, concern and respect, a basic entitlement? To what extent is that equality of concern and respect an ideal to be pursued by individuals, groups, or societies? How does adoption of it as an ideal threaten important aspects of the common good such as respect for and right to life and the transmission of life in a manner and context adequate to its dignity and needs. So first of all, basic equality, human equality as a fact. This is affirmed very strongly in the Christian tradition. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this, omnes homines Natura sunt pares. By nature, or in their nature, all human beings are equals. His formulation is close to the phrasing, uh, and I'm sure it's no accident, is, is close to the phrasing of the classical Roman jurists, informed as they were directly and indirectly by Aristotle and therefore also by Plato. What does contemporary thought make of this? Well, near the end of his famous book, A Theory of Justice, published in 1971, John Rawls turns to what he calls the basis of equality, the features of human beings in virtue of which they are to be treated in accordance with the principles of justice. On what grounds, he goes on, do we distinguish between mankind and other living, being, uh, other living things and regard the constraints of justice as holding only in our relations to human persons." Unquote. Rawls develops his answer to this well-formed question in tandem with an interesting footnote discussion of the good sense in the idea of natural rights. And his answer to his question is that, I quote, the capacity for moral personality is a sufficient condition for being entitled to equal justice, unquote. And you might ask yourself as you hear that, what would be different if we omitted from that sentence the word equal? The capacity for moral personality is a sufficient condition for being entitled to justice. To have moral personality is, in turn, he says, to be, quote, capable of having a conception of one's good as expressed by a rational plan of life and capable of having a sense of justice, unquote. So the sufficient condition is, on the face of his text, having the capacity for having certain capacities. It's not clear that Rawls intends or notices this doubling up of the idea of capacity. But he is clear that, and I quote again, the minimal requirements defining moral personality refer to a capacity and not to the realization of it. A being that has this capacity, whether or not it is yet developed, is to receive the full protection of the principles of justice. Since infants and children are thought to have basic rights, this interpretation of the requisite conditions seems necessary to match our considered judgments." Unquote. Rawls says that the natural capacities on which he is treating our equality as founded 
are what he calls a range property, as I shall say, unquote. Just as the, the property of being in the interior of the unit circle is a range property of points in the plane. I go on quoting, all points inside this circle have this property, and they equally have this property, since no point interior to a circle is more or less interior to it than any other interior point. Unquote. Since there is an obvious sense in which it's plainly false that no point within a circle is more interior than any other, one may reasonably wonder why Rawls introduced the category of having a range property when there are available categories which would do just as well or better, such as belonging to a category or being of a species or of the such and such kind, say humankind, as beings of the kind that is distinguished by the fact that its mature and well-functioning members could function as the parties to Rawls's hypothetical original position in his thought experiment. And in fact, Rawls does use the categories of belonging to a class and kind of beings synonymously with having the range property of having natural capacities for that kind of functioning which he sums up as moral personality. Well, that was 1971. Thirty years later, Jeremy Waldron, uh, former student uh, with me and uh, now a colleague of mine back in Oxford, surveyed the large Anglo-American literature on equality, noting how little of it was devoted to the basis of equality. In the event, Waldron proves unable to make significant progress, I think, beyond Rawls's discussion, but he does make clear what is involved in Rawls's notion of range property is what Waldron calls some binary or non-scalar property. One either has it or one doesn't, applicable to a class of items that can also be understood in a scalar way. That is, in terms of a scale measuring the degree to which an item possesses the associated scalar property. S. That a property is a binary, non-scalar, range property is always, Waldron suggests, a matter of its relation to the associated scalar property. So, capacity for moral personality is, he says, a scalar property. It exists in different people in different degrees, but it is one that can be treated as Rawls treats it as also a range, non-scalar property. Human beings, that is to say, unequal in their moral personalities or capacities, can be treated as equal by reason of their capacity for moral personality. Waldron applauds Rawls for treating what he calls marginal cases, not by watering down his range property, but says Waldron, by considering these marginal cases as special cases outside the range. So Waldron interprets Rawls as holding that infants do not have the capacity for moral personality, rather than, it, than interpreting Rawls as holding, as I think Rawls holds, that their infant's potentiality for moral personality brings them within the range property. Still, Waldron thinks that Peter Singer, another colleague, former colleague of mine and compatriot, is not sensible in looking only to actual capacities or abilities, say, adult chimpanzees compared with young human infants. In Waldron's view, we should hold, like John Locke, that children are born not in a state of equality, but to a state of equality which they will in due course attain. 
And this Waldron holds on the ground that the infant's, quote, capacities, both actual and potential, unquote, are sufficiently related to the capacities included in the relevant range property, say, reason or moral personality. But Waldron offers no reason to prefer this view to Rawls's, nor any reason to treat the relationship of potentiality as sufficiently related to actual capacity, and he makes no exploration of the relevant ideas of potentiality and capacity. Neither he nor Rawls shows any interest in the idea of an actual radical capacity, the idea implicit in the traditional notion of insolment. Though it's intelligible, the idea of a radical capacity is intelligible, though I think not fully explicable, without reference to soul. One can speak of radical capacities both in relation to the completely undeveloped early human embryo, where radical, that's to say root, has a quasi-temporal reference to beginnings. And one can speak of radical capacities in relation to one's developed powers of reason and will as rooted here and now in an underlying radical capacity where now radical has no temporal reference but denotes a here and now unity of different abilities in an actual existing root capacity. So, for example, in the introduction to the second volume of my five volumes of selected collected papers, shortly to be published, as Pat mentioned, the volume called Intention and Identity, I say, the healthy maturity of persons is just that, the actualizing of capacities which were present from the outset as radical at the root capacities, the presence of which from the outset of this or that human being's existence can be securely inferred from the unbroken course of their and the being's development and is confirmed by the distinctive human genomic constitution. But at the beginning of one of my more extended sets of explorations of the idea, in my debate with the philosopher, English philosopher John Harris, published by John Keown in 1995, which is now in volume three of my collected essays, I bring in a sec the second sense of radical capacity. I said, what do all human beings have in common? Their humanity. This is not a mere abstraction or nominal category, nor is it Kant's thin rationalistic reduction of one's humanity, one's Menschlichkeit, to that aspect of one's nature which one does not share with other terrestrial creatures, one's reason and rational will. Rather, one's humanity is one's capacity to live the life not of a carrot or a cat, but of a human being. And one's having this radical capacity is, again, no mere abstraction. It is indeed one's very life, one's li being a living human being. Carrots and cats, too, are alive, but human life is not partly carrot life and partly cat life. It is human through and through, a capacity more or less actualized in various states of existence, such as waking, sleeping, infancy, traumatic unconsciousness, decrepitude, and so forth. Capacity for human metabolism, human awareness, feelings, imagination, memory, responsiveness and sexuality, and human wondering, relating, and communicating, deliberating, choosing, and acting, and so forth. To lose one's life is to lose all these capacities, these specific forms and manifestations of one's humanness, it is to lose one's very reality as a human being. That reality, I went on, is through and through the reality of a person, a being with the radical capacity to, de to deliberate and choose. Every living human being has this radical capacity for participating in the manner of a person 
intelligently and freely in human goods. That is, every living being which results from human conception and has the epigenetic primordia that are lacking in every, for example, hydatidiform mole, and even more obviously lacking in every human sperm and every ovum, every living human being thus resulting has, uh, which has the epigenetic primordia of a human body, normal enough to be the bodily basis of some intellectual act, every such being is truly a human being, a human person." Unquote. And in response to John Harris's misunderstanding of that passage, I added later in our debate, radical capacity remains even when the breakdown of one or more of one's organs deprives one of the capacity in the sense of the ability to exercise that radical capacity in one or more of its dimensions. Someone in deep and irreversible persistent vegetative state, for example, is in a profoundly disabled condition. He has lost the capacity, the ability to think and feel, but not the humanity, the human life, which until his death goes on shaping, informing, and organizing his existence towards the feeling and thinking which are natural to human life, that is, which human life is radically capable of and oriented towards. And a few years later, I, I put the whole matter together like this. The one real basis of human equality and equality rights is the fact that each living human being possesses actually and not merely potentially the radical capacity to reason, laugh, love, repent and choose as this unique personal individual, a capacity which is not some abstract characteristic of a species, but rather consists in the unique individual organic functioning of the organism which comes into existence as a new substance at the conception of that human being and subsists until his or her death, whether 90 minutes or 90 days or 90 years later a capacity, individuality, and personhood which subsists as real and precious even while its operations come and go with many changing factors such as immaturity, injury, sleep, and senility. Human beings are not just values as the philosopher Jeremy Ryman, whom I was debating with then, imagines when asking why we don't think the number of people should be maximized, rather Human beings are persons, each incommunicably, non-fungibly individual in this peculiar, deep way, and so entitled, one by one, to be respected. And finally, in the, intro in the introduction to the third volume of my collected papers, Human Rights and Common Good, I sum it up like this. One's identity as a person with interests that are truly intelligible goods, all the way back to one's beginning as a pre-implantation embryo with the radical capacities whose ultimate objects, those same intelligible goods, one now participates in and deliberately intends, that identity is the ontological foundation of one's human rights because it is the foundation of one's judgment that I matter and of one's duties to respect and promote one's own good and therefore of one's judgment that others matter and of one's duties in other, respect, in other persons to respect and promote their good. For they too have such identities all the way back and all the way forward to the end of their lifetimes. Such radical capacities they have too. And they too have these intelligible forms of flourishing and harm of just the same kind as one's own, my own. Just as immaturity and impairment do not, in one's own existence, extinguish the radical capacities dynamically oriented towards self-development and healing, so they do not in the lives of other human persons. There, I concluded, is the ontological unity of the human race 
and radical equality of human beings, of human persons, which taken with the truths about basic human goods grounds the duties whose correlatives are human rights, duties to, responsibilities for, persons. Now the absence <coughs> of any and all of this from Rawls's and Waldron's explorations of the basis of equality accounts, I think, for the instability of their accounts of capacity or capacities and the poverty of their discussion of the basis in reality of any normative principle of or commitment to human equality in the sense of an entitlement shared by all human persons without any discrimination of the kind that it is reasonable to make between all human beings on the one hand and all other animals because all other animals lack the radical capacity to participate in personal life. But I think that to make up fully for the deficiencies in Rawls's or Waldron's standard modern accounts, we need to take one step further and make clear, as I think I made clear in the pages before the passage I just quoted last, and even clearer, I think, in the introduction to the second volume of the essays, that this radical capacity is the human spirit, the human soul, that, as Aquinas says, is the very actuality and form of the human body. For the objects of our radical capacities are spiritual objects, the subject matters of acts of intending, and hoping, and recognizing, and praying for. And here we can recall the guiding axiom of St. Thomas's whole philosophical method, as it bears on dynamic realities. This axiom, you know something's nature only by knowing its capacities, and you know its capacities only by knowing their act, actualization. And these acts you know for what they are only by knowing their objects. Well, the objects of human acts, acts of the kind that we have the radical capacity for from our conception, the objects of human acts include such radically transmaterial spiritual objects as fidelity to marital commitment, faith in things not seen but reasonably believed and hoped in, and so much more. The capacities that we had when we each were in embryonic form, and which a frog embryo, for example, never had, must therefore have been spiritual in that remarkable way that we find again, even in an ordinary human word, united, that is, with matter. Perhaps Rawls and Waldron had all this in mind when speaking of moral personality, perhaps, but I, I fear not. Well, if you ask how a factual descriptive property and equality of this kind, or indeed of any such kind, how that can be the basis for any normative moral proposition about entitlements, justice, and so forth, the answer is, in short, that the fact has the place in a practical syllogism that some fact or facts have in every practical syllogism. That is, in or as the second premise. The first and normative premise here is that life, knowledge, friendship, and so forth are goods to be favoured in my existence and the existence of anyone like me. The second premise, then, is that in one, though not all relevant respects, that is, in radical capacity, in being corpore et, animo, in, et, et anima unus, as Gaudium et Spes puts it, as being body and soul one, in that respect, every human person is like me, is to some extent my neighbor for the purposes of the norm, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the normative conclusion follows. <coughs> 
So secondly, equality as a norm. In, in my book, Natural Law, Natural Rights, I hold that, and I quote, equality is a fundamental element in the notion of justice, of course, saying just what Aristotle, for example, says. In particular, all members of a community equally have the right to respectful consideration when the problem of distribution of some set of benefits or burdens that need to be shared arises. But I also hold in that book that no one can reasonably treat with equal concern everyone whose interests one could ascertain and affect. And that it is not only not compulsory for an individual or a government to treat everyone as entitled to equal concern, but not even permissible to do so. The premise for this thesis of mine is that individuals and governments have responsibilities to particular persons and sets of persons by reason of promises, dependence and interdependence, parenthood, obligations of gratitude, and so forth, and so forth. Now, Ronald Dworkin, another uh, long-time former colleague of mine, has made what he calls the principle of equal concern and respect the theme of his work in political philosophy for 40 years. So I asked the question, does he say anything to give plausibility to the principle, which, as I say, in all his writings, including this year's new book of his, Justice for Hedgehogs, he treats as morality's sovereign principle, as he puts it. Notice that the principle of equal concern and respect is, is one articulated by him as applying to governments, and for each government as applying in relation only to those, those under its dominion. In this way, Dworkin entirely avoids confronting explicitly the claims of persons who are not citizens or residents of the government's territory. Implicitly, he ignores to the point of denying those claims, but he keeps the issue just out of sight by abstaining from confronting the phrase, those under the government's dominion, with the would-be immigrant who is certainly under the dominion of our government when he emerges somewhere in our territory and claims a moral right or simply requests permission to stay, reside, become a citizen, bring his extended family in the interests of his right to private life, and so forth. And in relation to the claims of equal concern as a general principle of justice, Dworkin is clear that it has no straightforward applicability. He says, I can, I can accept with perfect sincerity that your children's lives are no less obje important objectively than the lives of my own, and yet I can dedicate my life to helping my children while I ignore yours. They, after all, are my children. Unquote. He draws a reasonable distinction between harming and not helping, and he accepts, defends, and applies in his new book the principle of double effect. That is, that there is a genuine moral difference between what one intends and what one accepts as a side effect. Highly relevant to the treatment of, of those whom one justifiably ignores, doesn't have equal concern for. He applies a neighbor principle based on proximity, which he calls degree of confrontation between victim and potential rescuer, to distinguish cases where failing to rescue is unjust because showing an indifference to the importance of human life from cases where failing to rescue or not rescuing is not unjust. With all that in mind, consider another of Ronald Dworkin's illustrations of equal concern. He says, this is from his new book, utilitarianism offers an unpersuasive interpretation of equal concern parents would not show equal concern for all their children if they spent their entire available budget educating only those children who were likely to earn heavily in the market. That would not treat the success of each child's life as equally important." Unquote. Well, no doubt. But suppose we make the hypothetical a little more realistic and, and set aside the question of utilitarianism. Suppose we eliminate the hypothesis that the parents leave some of their children starving 
and instead ask whether it is reasonable for parents, parents who make basic humane provision for all their six children, to use any and all further income on sending, say, two promising children to school. In the one case, they do it so that in the long run this child may, as a doctor, earn enough to raise the standard of living of all her siblings, and in the other, so that this child may develop his profound musical talents as a composer with little expectation of his ever making much money. The countless families, for example in Africa, as I saw in Malawi, who nurture the talents of one child even though the talents of others must lie fallow whether or not the family's surplus income after provision of basic necessities is devoted to the talented one, the one they choose to support, all those families thereby show their repudiation of strong egalitarianism, such as my former colleague Jerry Cohen, G.A. Cohen's luck egalitarianism, which proposes to eliminate all inequalities deriving from luck, not choice. And indeed, it seems to me that such families show their rejection of any interpretation of treat everyone with equal concern, any interpretation that would place even a question mark against their choice to devote vastly more to one child than to the others, where the egalitarian alternative would yield only small, even though real, benefit to those other children. And their rejection of egalitarian interpretations of equal concern seems to me wholly justified by the intrinsic human good involved in a, for example, developed musical compositional talent or, to revert to the other case, of favouring two out of many children uh, in a medical career which will never benefit the siblings left back in the village. But Rawls, Dworkin and Cohen, if not also Waldron, try to do their moral and political philosophy without any conception of intrinsic human goods, beyond reason and freedom just as such, unguided by any further good that might specify a rational, a practical principle directive for individual or institutional deliberation. What then should we say about equality as a norm or standard? I've already indicated a few ways in which it does not prevail against justified claims of need, desert, responsibility, and so forth. Nor does it prevail in face of opportunities of realizing important basic goods compatibly with decent concern for but not equal treatment of others. What should be said about the ways in which the principle of equality does rightly prevail? Well, I've said that there is an entitlement of everyone shared with no other beings of whom we have experience in our world to be considered in relation to questions of justice whose resolution might impact on him or her. Immediately, we should add that everyone has also the absolute rights that correspond to moral absolutes, that is, to the exceptionless negative moral norms which are the backbone of our law and social morality and were the main theme of John Paul II's very important encyclical Veritatis Splendor. Every human being has the right not to be intentionally killed, the right not to be tortured in the proper sense of the word, the right not to be lied to in the proper sense of the word, not to be raped and so forth. Whatever the circumstances or supposed benefits that would be brought about by doing so. This is the primary sense of the propositions with which the Pope concludes his teaching on those norms in Veritatis Splendor 96. He says, when it is a matter of the moral norms prohibiting intrinsic evil, there are no privileges or exceptions for anyone. It makes no difference whether one is master of the world or the poorest of the poor. Before the demands of morality, we are all absolutely equal." Unquote. Again, as I say in my book, Aquinas, 
the essential equality of human beings is nowhere more evident than in Aquinas's account of rights to things, property. For his fundamental axiom is that the world's resources are for the benefit of all human beings. And one of his more, most important theorems is that in dire necessity, property rights are in abeyance so that the relevant resources can be immediately available to those in dire necessity. All of them, anyone. But he also appeals to the natural equality of all human beings as ground for his restriction of compulsory state authority to public matters, and especially his exclusion of any human authority to require certain matters of bodily behavior, such as marriage. And his principle that we are all by nature equal in liberty bears, I think, on the morality of a kind of action that St. Thomas did not have to consider, the generation of human beings by techniques divorced from marital intercourse. In my discussion of the morality of cloning in the year 2000 in a conference of scientists in Europe, I said, in a not-too-friendly audience. Generation of embryos by cloning, because that was the explicit subject of the conference, generation of embryos by cloning, whether by splitting or somatic cell nucleus transfer, is a matter of asexual reproduction. The fact that cloning is copying is, biologically speaking, only an implication of that fact of non-sexuality in reproduction. And as I've already indicated, I uh, emphasized as I went on earlier in that talk, the, the embryo produced is a child as fully human, as incommunicably unique a person as any ordinary twin or indeed as any other human person. But the conditions or character of his or her generation by production dramatize something to be found, if less dramatically, in all generation of children in vitro something that makes all these kinds of generation morally wrong, fundamentally or intrinsically. The morally significant fact is not, of course, the fact that technology is being put to use. Still less is it the fact that what is, done is, what is being done is statistically or biologically abnormal. No. It is rather the fact that what is being chosen and done is precisely an act of production, the aim of this choice and act is precisely to supply someone with a baby by trying to produce a baby by the in vitro procedures which, in the case on which we are focusing in this conference, are one or other of the procedures of cloning. And how does this make the choosing, the choosing act wrong? The answer is the products as such are assigned their meaning and value by the human makers who produce them and by the consumers who use them. And so the status of any product, precisely as such, is subpersonal. That initial relationship of those who choose to produce babies with the babies they produce is inconsistent with and so inherently impedes the communion which is appropriate in any relationship among persons concerning the basic aspects of their personal well-being and their fundamental good. In short, the relation of producers to product is a relation of domination, which in itself is contrary to the dignity and equality which is appropriate to the parent-child relationship. These are some main lines, of, I went on, of the philosophical analysis which shows that the moral character of the choice and act of IVF and a fortiori all the more, the, the moral character of generation by cloning is essentially the same as slavery which, like IVF, has its relatively benevolent forms, the benevolence and benefits of which the good motives and effects do not cancel out its fundamental evil. The question is thus one <coughs> of equality in dignity and of choices and acts which are disrespectful of that equality because, first, they do not conform to the golden rule that one must not do to others what one would not have done to us, 
Or secondly, they set the will of the choosing person directly against some basic aspect of the good of a human person. Well, I turn finally to some of the ways in which widespread conceptions of a right to equality are a menace to the common good in matters proximately related to human life in its transmission. A simple example is the introduction of so-called same-sex marriage into Canada on the basis of a right of equality announced, for example, in the preamble to the federal legislation upheld prospectively by the Supreme Court of Canada in December 2004. The preamble of the Act recited, whereas in order to reflect values of tolerance, respect and equality consistent with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, access to marriage for civil purposes should be extended to couples of the same sex and so on. In this declaration, what the Supreme Court of Canada found significant was the government's I quote, the government's policy stance in relation to the equality concerns of same-sex couples, concerns which the court linked with Section 15.1, the provision about a right to equality in the Canadian Charter of Rights, part of the Constitution. What we find in this case, as in many others, such as the very recent English cases that I'll mention in a moment, is something I've not seen identified and commented much if at all before. The traditional position of, for example, the United States Supreme Court, and of courts around the world, uh, has been that legislation which impacts, as virtually all legislation must, unequally on different classes of persons, leaving aside specially protected categories such as race, such legislation must and can be justified, in many cases, by pointing to some legitimate purpose or aim to which the legislative scheme, with its differential impact, is rationally related. Rational relationship of means to ends. This is not a very demanding hurdle for legislation to surmount, to be counted constitutionally valid. What we find in the new policies and doctrine of equality is a kind of inversion of this. If legislatures or the courts as lawmakers take equality itself as their aim and prohibition of discrimination, so-called, as their means, then the courts will treat the legislation as valid, notwithstanding its negative impact on other constitutionally protected rights or, and or, on other aspects of the common good. So, for example, the Equality Act 2010, or an act of a statute of England and Wales, consolidates and extends the 2007, I think, law that requires Catholic adoption agencies not even to take into consideration as one negative factor, amongst others, that might be outweighed, the homosexual practices and opinions of applicant prospective adopters of Catholic infants, <coughs> even though that devastating impact on the agencies could easily have been avoided because such applicants could easily have found and used other adoption agencies. Now Catholic schools in England of every kind, public or private, state or non-state, are similarly forbidden to count at all the openly unchaste actions and commitments of homosexuals as a ground for not employing them as teachers, and are forbidden to do or say anything that could create a work environment offensive to openly practicing homosexuals, the ones that they've been forced to employ as teachers notwithstanding the very large number of other schools at which these persons might be employed. Consider now the very recent English case a couple of weeks ago about foster parenting by Christians, as it happened, a black uh, Pentecostalist couple, unwilling to teach eight-year-old foster children that homosexual conduct is as morally decent as Christian marriage case of Johns against the Derby County Council. It was argued on the basis that the fostering authority, the council, 
was being asked only to make use of them as short-term emergency parents, foster parents, when no other foster parent was available. And it was clear that they need never have been called upon to foster children of an age where sex need be discussed at all. And yet they failed. In that respect, the case was analogous to the 2010 case on which the judges in Johns relied, Islington London Borough Council against Lay Deal, in which a registrar of marriages was dismissed by her employer, the council, for being unwilling on religious grounds to conduct civil partnership ceremonies, which are always with, conducted with a view to or in recognition of same-sex sex acts. The analogy is that here too it would have been easy for the council to use other registrars in its employment to conduct the ceremonies instead of Ms. Ladeal. The authorities' pursuit of its equality policy, that is, no discrimination against gays, though it involved no direct, that is, intended disfavoring of Christians, did involve indirect discrimination, that is, discrimination as a side effect, because it impacted unfavorably on them without sufficient reason. Under English law, which uses a slightly different terminology from American equality law or civil rights law, but essentially it's deep structure the same, indirect discrimination is permissible only if the relevant, that's to say unintended discrimination, is permissible only if the relevant personal body here the local governmental authority as employer, prove that the measure having this unintended discriminatory impact was a, in the English European language, proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. Now one of the criteria of disproportionality is needless unfavorable impact or, or different or differently expressed, an unfavorable impact greater than the minimum needed to carry out the authority's policy, its legitimate aim, carried out satisfactorily. And in both Ladeal and John's, the unfavorable impact was precisely on the exercise or enjoyment of a right as fundamental, if not more fundamental, than any legal right to equality, namely the right to freedom of conscience or religion. The judges all, in effect, treated as simply decisive the fact that the authority's legitimate aim was in this case an anti-discrimination aim of eliminating discrimination against homosexual conduct as if this kind of aim had a special status immunizing it from normal proportionality requirements about the means of pursuing the aim, especially, as I've said, the requirement that the means shall have only the minimum impact on the enjoyment of other rights only the minimum needed if the aim was to be pursued at all. And in neither John's nor Ladeal was that the case. The conscientious objections of the prospective foster parents and the registrar, respectively, could easily have been accommodated without prejudice to the pursuit of the aim, and similarly with the Catholic adoption agencies. Well, both the old egalitarianism of resource allocation and the new egalitarianism of non-discrimination are each, I think, morally objectionable unless treated not as a sovereign principle but as a claim of a more tempered kind. In relation to resource allocation as such, the justifiable claim is at least to respectful consideration, to basic civic rights, and to a humane minimum support in face of hunger, disease, lack of education, and so forth. And beyond that is a claim to opportunities of kinds that do not do unreasonable harm to the opportunities or other basic interests of others. And above that, perhaps a, a claim to an equal share in any final distribution that might be made by one's community after all prior entitlements based on contribution, function, and so forth had been satisfied. In relation to the application of criteria to other kinds of social interaction besides resource allocation, the justifiable claim is, I think, not to be treated less favorably than others without some reasonable ground, some rational basis. And that's all, I think. 
It's certain that there are reasonable grounds for not employing practicing homosexuals in Catholic schools, or indeed any schools, in circumstances where doing so would impede the transmission of the truth that their way of life is unchaste and inimical to the sustainability of the whole community and justice to children, a sustainability and justice which strongly call for marriage and support of marriage through thick and thin. Uh, for sure, all the more with adoption and foster parenting. There can be no we easy way out. The true goods at stake, such as authentic marriage and sound as distinct from unsound religion, and from theoretical or practical atheism are goods that need to be defended and promoted in the face of the self-destructive project of non-discrimination between good and its negation. For a standing menace to the common good, our common good, is a political philosophy or rhetoric that appeals to equality to reinforce the thesis that government and law should be neutral in the face of claims to autonomous self-determination. That is, should be neutral in the face of claims that autonomously chosen, for example, death is as good as life, claims to life, and neutral in the face of the even more sinister claim that death is as good as, or better than, life whenever a reasonable person could have opted for death, even though the actual person to be put to death is not capable of making that choice, or, to take Ronald Dworkin's chilling proposal, is a person who once gave an advanced conditional directive in favor of her own death, but now is legally incapable, through Alzheimer's disease, of revoking her own directive, but is happy, happy to go on living, and now, says Dworkin, should be put to death out of respect for her former autonomy. In his latest work, Justice for Hedgehogs, Dworkin generally abstains from linking respect for autonomy to equality but he nowhere repudiates the long series, the 40-year-long series of arguments, all failed arguments, as I've argued elsewhere over the years, the arguments that grounded the right to liberty or to autonomy or ethical self-government on a prior, deeper right to equality of respect. That is the right, or rather the claim, that we must put under truly critical scrutiny in ways that I've been sketching, but only sketching, this evening. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.